You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 11th of December, 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show... The deal we have achieved is the best deal possible. It's the only deal possible. The president of the European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, makes it clear that the withdrawal agreement won't change. So what is Theresa May trying to achieve from this latest European tour? My guests, Tim Marshall and Joy Ladico, will be discussing the never-ending Brexit saga and the day's other top stories, including a look at air quality in India, which has become the most polluted country in the world. And... I ask the government and parliament to do what is necessary so one can live better on his work salary from the beginning of next year. The minimum wage will increase by 100 euros a month starting in 2019 with no extra cost to employers. French President Emmanuel Macron is trying to find a path towards peace on the streets, but at what cost? All that plus the role of journalism in 2018, as Time magazine highlights killed, prosecuted and imprisoned journalists for its Person of the Year issue. That's all to come on Midori House with me, Daniel Bache. So welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Tim Marshall, editor of the what and the why.com, and Joy Ladico, columnist at the London Evening Standard. Welcome back to the program, both. Uh, we'll begin on Brexit, or at least an attempt to make sense of the la- the last tumultuous 24 hours and what might come next. Yesterday, British Prime Minister Theresa May told MPs she was postponing a vote on the withdrawal agreement, which was meant to happen today, Tuesday, leading to a heated debate in the Commons until late last night. Today, she meeting with European leaders and EU officials to try and rescue her Brexit deal. But the EU has said time and time again it is not possible to change the agreement. So where does that leave Mrs. May? Uh, Off to a little bit of a difficult start in Berlin today, Joy. Um, I think the headlines, they're already writing themselves, aren't they? Well, there was some trouble getting out of a car. It seems somebody hadn't taken the child lock off or the security lock off. So while Angela Merkel waited for her, we watched a black car and a man trying to fiddle with a key, trying to let her out. the other problem she's got is that you know, everybody in the, the EU27 is fantastically good at lining up. Mm. They all seem to call each other. I don't know if they're all on the same WhatsApp group. And they all say the same thing, which is our top line is we aren't negotiating the deal. And then you begin to hear a line that, um, that uh, Jean-Claude Juncker is saying echoed almost word for word in Germany, uh, in France, in uh, the Netherlands. And you think, my God, they've got a slick operation going. And there's 27 of them. So... She's arrived uh, and she's not made much progress so far. If only we could get conservatives in this country on the same page. What do you think? (laughs) Well, German leader Angela Merkel did rule out further negotiations on Brexit, uh, Tim, but said efforts were being made to give Britain reassurances. What does that mean? It means that if at the EU summit later this week, they can come up with a form of nice warm words. Um, I'm sorry to get technical on you, but the backstop agreement, Mm -hmm. which basically, the way it's worded, does leave part of the United Kingdom, which is uh, Northern Ireland, within the customs union and the single market of the EU, even if the rest of us had actually left, which is absolutely not on for Mm. many politicians. If they, and the the problem is the current wording of the agreement suggests that uh, even after a transition period, both sides have to agree to end that. Right. Consequently, even if the British say, right, we want that 
to be finished now, Brussels can say, well, actually, we don't, and therefore, forever, it is it rem- part of the United Kingdom remains in the EU. Right. Supposing they come out with a statement on Thursday or Friday saying, we understand how you feel and we want to do the best for you. So here's a statement that... Yes, we agree that, you know what, eventually uh, you will be able to go. And that's about as far as they're going to get. But, of course, the text of the agreement will still remain the same, and so I don't think that would make any difference. But I think they're just going to try and have some warm words, Mm. and that's about it. Yes, I think it's almost going to be a game of bingo, actually. So I'm looking for um, good faith, I'm looking for best endeavours, and (laughs) open-minded examinations. Love it. Yeah, would you go for those? House, (laughs) house. Yeah. So, Joey, if the the wording isn't going to be changed, what what of this trip? What what is Mrs May? Well, what is is the point? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the DUP is not going to uh, accept things in their current form. Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, leader of the kind of... uh, right-wing faction within the Tory party has said uh, it really doesn't matter what she Mm. does we want a new prime minister the Remainers are going to sit there saying well you know really does this make this any better at all and Labour um, 18 months ago put up these six tests um, for uh, whether this Brexit would be good enough for them Um, I have occasionally looked up these six tests to remind myself Mm. it's completely irrelevant what they are we're never going to meet them because they're designed not to be met so she's still going to come back after her tour in Europe with the whole of Parliament against her. So what of a no-confidence vote then? That was That's sort of quietly been happening today, but no announcement while she's away in Europe, I understand, but, but where do we stand on that? Uh, 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 we are all absolutely guessing, and there are about 60 to 70 scenarios we can paint, but we don't have time. Mm. Um, but before we get to that scenario, which is, okay, Labour calls a no-confidence in the government, uh, at which point... Uh, if two-thirds of the government agree, and that would take some Conservatives, Mm. the the current government, to actually say, yes, I haven't got any confidence in in myself either, at which point you can call a new election, potentially, or you can invite people to try to form governments from within Parliament. I think before we get there, the Conservative rebels will finally say to Mrs May, it's time to go. Uh, They will trigger uh, a leadership election, Uh, assuming she doesn't win that. If she does win it, that's it. She's in charge for another year. If she loses it, at that point, there will be a new Conservative Party leader, which under the system in this country means that 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 person will be the Prime Minister because they're the ruling party. (laughs) And the problem is they're in exactly the same place that she was, with Mm. exactly the same deal. Nobody will... All it does is changes the leader, but that might take some heat out of the situation. Do, do you agree with that, John? Well, no, I don't think it is going to change much heat out of the situation because... In, in but no, but it doesn't change the situation, does it? It doesn't change yeah. the situation at all. Uh, I think, if anything, it adds more heat into the situation right. because uh, there is only one way we're going to get a proper Article 50 extension, which is if we have uh, a general election or a referendum. And so if there is a new uh, Tory party leader, he or she has to call a election almost immediately in order to satisfy that, in order to get enough time to then go back to renegotiate. And at that point, the EU27 sort of has to sort of do some thinking about whether this is the correct thing to do. You know, this is a democracy. It's one of its member states. What do we do? Mm. And they have to be a bit more pragmatic. But I think if they Mm. just change Conservative Party leader, I think the EU27 will say that's absolutely fine. That's internal politics. Uh, uh, Carry on. Um, See you on March 29th. And we're not changing the wording. And we're not changing the wording. <laughs> and, and all this stuff really, really does matter because um, the, the, the true Brit part of me actually does. I'm a Remainer, um, uh, but you know, I was. I'm kind of. 
I've got used to the idea that we're leaving. Uh, but a part of me actually wants to stick two fingers up to Brussels and say, mm. well, screw you, we'll have a hard Brexit and see how you like it. Although I know that that will hurt. <laughs> and I had lunch with a very, very senior banker today who used to run a, a household name bank, pan-European. And uh, so I said to him, look, you know, that part of me actually does want to do that. Um, the, the Pascal Lamy uh, said the other day that, that going for WTO rules, you know, hard Brexit, We'll trade on WTO rules. Yeah. It's like going from the first division of a football championship down to the fourth division. And I said to this banker, is that true? And he said, absolutely, it's true. Uh, you know, you're going into a different club that's nowhere near as good as the one. So, you know, my head rules. There's mm. no way I'm going to think, let's just leave. But the, sorry, the reason I think it really matters is we are talking about people's livelihoods, people's lives, yeah. jobs and all the rest of it, mostly for the UK. But there is this huge knock-on effect for people in Ireland. And there's a knock-on effect for people that work in car factories in Germany. You know, I mean, it's, it's such a car crash. Mm. Well, a good way to put it. And on that note, perhaps we uh, will end the speculation for now. We will, of course, be back on this topic, but we'll we'll turn our attention to France now. Another uh, a bit of a car crash situation where following weeks of violent protests, President Emmanuel Macron has bowed to pressure, announcing a series of emergency measures. The French president promised a rise in the minimum wage and also some tax concessions last night in a 13-minute primetime television address. Uh, Tim, what did you make of this mea culpa? Um, you know, this is sort of turning the page for, for Macron. Quel surprise. Yeah. What took you so long, Mr. Macron? A month. A month of violence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was always going to do a U-turn. French presidents always do U-turns. Mm. I, in another century and in another life, was a Paris correspondent in, in the 80s when um, Mr. Mitterrand came to power. And he came to power as the man that was going to fundamentally change the country and do this and do that and do that. And then it took him about five or six months, complete U-turn. Chirac did the same thing. Sarkozy did the same thing. He was going to reform France. And this guy came along. He's done it more quickly and worse than any French president I can remember. <laughs> he was the man who actually said he was going to, I will govern like Jupiter. And now he's the man who fell to earth. Right. Is this then, Joy, a massive step back for a leader who did promise to reshape uh, France's economy, like many before? Um, well, it sort of is. I mean, he, he made uh, the mistake, I would say, that our, our own chancellor, uh, previous chancellor, George Oswald, made, which was to take off... Isn't the, he your boss? Uh, as chancellor. As chancellor... <laughs> He uh, took off the uh, uh, top rate of tax. We reduced the top rate of tax. And it's kind of old kind of 1980s libertarian mm. Laffer, for, uh, Laffer curve um, economics to say, well, actually, there'll be more rich people in the country uh, and they will be more honest about their taxes and mm. put more money into the country. It's absolutely brilliant until you see the effect of it. And arguably, in Britain, the effect was a Brexit vote um, yeah. along the way. And in France... Uh, the result has been uh, uh, Macron having to present, put, put in an extra £10 billion mm. pounds of money for essentially yeah. kind of the welfare level of spending to kind of cushion that blow. Um, upside, Thomas Piketty might be pleased because the inequality ratio has gone down a little bit as a result of it, but it's a very messy way of mm. doing it. And, and, and did none of this needed <coughs> to happen. Let's look at what sparked it, which was the rise in diesel. 25% yeah. tax upping across the year. Now, most French vehicles run on diesel. So he wants to have green policies. 
don't we all? Except yeah. none of us want to pay for them. I mean, there's a whole other debate there. So, but he squeezes the very people that are already suffering the most, who were yeah. told a few years ago diesel's actually better than uh, ordinary petrol. Now we know that it isn't. And I looked up some facts and figures. The Californian forest fires this year emitted more CO2 emissions than the entire French economy over one year. Mm. So he's gone for this tiny, tiny little tranche of hitting the people the most who can't afford to w- uh, live and work in the major cities and so are pushed out and therefore need their cars. Uh, f- for what? To spark the biggest uprising France has seen in, in, in 40 years. It's been a disaster. Now, his new policies... Sorry, mm. Joy, I'm, I'm banging on a bit. I'll let you come in. <laughs> These policies are actually quite good from a certain point of view. 100 uh, euros per month on to the minimum wage. 25 euros a week is worth having. Mm. Uh, tax freeze for pensioners on low incomes. And uh, no tax on overtime. That's going to hopefully, you know, you get people to work. Now, whether they can afford it is one thing, but those sort of slightly smaller economic models that he's, that he's trying to introduce now might have kick-started and helped the economy. Instead, mm. what he's had on his hands is a riot, and a, yet again... The, the non-human face of capitalism is shown to the world because mm. I, I, I believe that capitalism has lost its human face and consequently is going through a, a crisis. Well, I mean, you know, it's very, you know, he comes in on a platform of liberalising France, which does begin to look kind of rather creaky and antiquated compared to the rest of Europe in terms of you know, the rules and regulations that are in place. Having said that, its productivity is actually rather extraordinarily high given the number of hours he's worked. So why he's let overtime happen when he's actually doing better than most of us, I don't know. But I would say it's not just the language of capitalism, it's also the language of environmentalism that's causing a problem because I think anything that's got multi-syllable words like the environment, sustainability, is beginning to lock people out of um, a kind of genuine conversation with their government. And they're being told, well, these are being done for the greater good. And you're right about car usage. I mean, one of the telling statistics now is that if you are in the kind of the kind of upper middle classes, you are at least likely to own a car because you will be living in such a place which is already well served mm. uh, by public transport. And it's somehow a kind of lower status symbol. You are essentially lower working class if you've got to drive, uh, lower middle class or working class if you've got to drive around. So you just have to break that down and say, well, actually, of course you were. The, mm. That tax was going to hit a particular sector of society. It may say, you know, it may feel like a kind of general tax, but it's not. Can he resurrect this sort of green agenda? We, we you know, we've had we've had a huge economic impact here in, in losses because of businesses haven't been able to run because of protests and things like that. Um, but is that something he can come back on? Because you know, misplaced or not, as you say, this wasn't a really good strategy to start with. Well. Most people are persuaded that we actually do need seriously green policies. Mm. If we get time, we'll be coming onto that in India. Mm. Um, but I, I just think it's such an easy hit. Oh, how can I quickly gather X million euros? Oh, I'll put a tax on mm. people's petrol. It, it's a lot harder to think what sustainable infrastructures can I introduce um, for the renewables. That's a lot harder because that's proper big long-term investment as opposed to small uh, short-term term gains. But he could perhaps go for the bigger infrastructure, but there's no way he can mm. go for anything that hits ordinary people for the foreseeable future. Uh, Joy, when uh, Macron came on the scene, he took tremendous, uh, a tremendous stride forward, you know, in becoming the sort of the most prominent leader in Europe. That's uh, surely very damaged now. But is his focus at 
at all on Europe or simply ensuring up any support he can muster back home? Well, I was just wondering, the question of the question is, who do I call when I call Europe, as mm. um, Kissinger once said? And who do we call at the moment? Certainly not Theresa. Angela Merkel is, is technically in office, but leaving power quite soon. And Macron um, has lost his authority internally. So even if he goes to Europe with sort of a grand modernization scheme there, they'll say, I think you might have a problem back home you want yeah. to sort out. I'm surprised Donald Trump hasn't uh, come on Twitter yet, unless I've missed mm. it, to um, give some words about Macron and the protests. We're all wise on. after the event, but I, I did think last year when this guy apparently walked, literally walked on water, according to a particular British magazine that pictured him doing that, and he was going to be the leader of the free world, I thought, you're not looking ahead to the battles he's going to have and probably lose. Mm. Uh, and what, the leader of the... Yeah, there, there is actually a job vacancy, mm. but he's not filling it, and neither is Trudeau, and we'll wait to see the Annegret, uh, AKK, the, the new German CDU leader, if she becomes chancellor, you know, does she have what it takes in these extremely turbulent times to actually not just be just for Germany, but mm. to try to have some sort of liberal order leadership? I'm interested, Jim, uh, in your experience in covering uh, France and, and, and French leaders. Uh, Macron's seen as a, as a sort of a leader of the affluent, perhaps, but what of, uh, of his ability to connect with the people that he mentioned in that speech last night, the, the people that are struggling a little bit? But he still said, my people in it. Mm. Excuse me? <laughs> I'm not your yours. You know, he, this is something that he can't seem to... It's a nervous tick almost. My people. Now, French presidents, if they're extremely popular, you know, they can sort of bestride the country like a colossus de Gaulle up to a point, you know, with le tat c'est moi. But not Macron at the moment. Don't say my people. Uh, he has... He does not have a common touch. Uh, he hectored an unemployed man uh, recently about, you know, nip across the road and go and get a job. Uh, he, he, everything he touches at the moment turns to dust, and he's got a long, long haul to get back. Well, well a long haul to, to see who we will be calling in Europe next uh, in the, the coming weeks and months. Uh, oh, very, very, very. Yeah, yeah, please. I, I do think he's probably done enough, especially with Christmas coming up, to draw most of the sting and next year try to uh, reassemble everything. Mm. Sorry. Oh, interesting. Well, one to look forward to as well in the new year. Uh, we're going to take a break. Coming up next, the worst air pollution in the world and protecting the truth as Time magazine highlights prosecuted journalists for its Person of the Year issue. Russia is a large and unwieldy beast, but in recent decades it's been tamed by President Vladimir Putin, who's deftly tightened his grip on power. To find more about where Russia finds itself today, from its soft power to its economy, watch our animated nation survey, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You're listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bage, Tim Marshall and Joy Ledico. Uh, while we're used to linking poor air quality to China, it seems India's air quality is now far worse than China's ever was. A new study published in The Lancet has estimated in 2017 air pollution was responsible for the deaths of 1.24 million people in India, adding that the 10 most polluted cities in the world are all in northern India. Harmful pollutants in the air come from dirty diesel exhaust fumes, as we've talked about, industrial emissions, construction dust, and crop burning as well. Uh, top officials in Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government have suggested New Delhi's air is only a little dirtier than that in other major capitals, such as London. But serious action needs to be taken here. That's 
that's far off the truth, is it not, Joy? Uh, that is very far off the truth. If you look at the charts, you'll see mm. that there's a possible small pro- um, <clears throat> problem with air pollution in places like London. There's virtually none in places like Norway, uh, Madagascar, and there are a few other nations there. India's is really uh, absolutely extreme. There's virtually no person in a heavily populated area in India who will not uh, be suffering incredibly bad air quality. China is... Uh, not great, but it's mm. not too bad uh, by comparison. Indonesia is also not particularly brilliant. Um, what was also demonstrated in these charts in this particular study? Uh, so first of all, what they do is they take um, rather than just sort of saying per person, they actually look at people in cities versus countryside. So it's assumed that if you have a large countryside population, right. they're in fact unlikely to be affected by air pollution because of the space. So they wait towards who's in cities. Um, what you can see is that. For all we've just been talking about Macron and environmentalism, for all the kind of hand wringing that's going on in Europe at the moment, we are not the problem. Um, we are, have already got pretty good measures in place. Our health is not actually being that deeply adversely affected by this. Yeah. But the major problems are happening in uh, uh, developing, very, very fast developing uh, nations with high populations. And the ability to get that under control. Uh, particularly in India, which has got such a bureaucratic mm. deadlock, is going to be very difficult. Tim, does this put things into perspective? For, you know, in the, the if we look at the West versus the developing world, let's say in Canada, for example, an entire election is being framed on a carbon tax. But if we look at mm. India, it's it's. I mean, it's well, just the cost of progress. It's it's, yeah, it's well, crazy. Well, I, I was going to come to this cost mm. of progress argument. Yes, it does put it into perspective, but that doesn't mean that it's not a very serious issue mm. in all of our major capitals and, and even in this, this, this um, election in Canada, because it, it is an issue. Mm. Uh, it is affecting our children's health, uh, brain development, all, all the rest of it. And it is bad for climate change, if you believe 97.9% of the world's scientists. So it's not, it's not to diminish our problems, but yes, it does put it into perspective because mm. this idea that London is as bad as New Delhi is, is utter nonsense. You see, mm. I, the, the thing is, this is why I would like to just... I mean, I'm, I'm a total greenie, but I do want to put in this uh, little note, which is uh, air pollution potentially... Uh, the way the stats are always written is that it potentially affects 40,000, 70,000 lives in London. Um, or, or foreshortens them. We're talking about a couple of weeks here, foreshortening. Yes. I mean, trust me, a packet of cigarettes will do worse. Yeah. And also, you know, 10, 15 years ago, when all our buses were sort of pumping mm-hmm. out the most terrible pollutants, mm. um, the situation was much worse. Um, there's a sort of stri- slight uptick at the moment because we've all got these wood-burning stoves in mm-hmm. London which is causing pollution. But it's not... We're not at this sort of crisis level no, that we seem to be yeah, talking yeah. about. Um, and I would worry that, in fact, what we're doing is deflecting from... Um, a bigger subject, which is um, global warming, mm. which doesn't have quite the same resonance with human beings as saying, oh, my God, your lungs are going to be polluted. Mm. Um, having, having said that, in India, <laughs> the lung pol- the, the pollution is indeed affecting people's health yeah, to we, a, a terrible effect. We, we read 1.7 years are taken off. But that that was what drove me towards the, 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 this argument. I looked up the stats for 1947 for independence. Life expectancy in India then was 32 and now it's 69. Now, obviously, there was a, a, a child mortality was, was mm. much, much higher. One of the things that has happened with India, as well as the healthcare, that c- coming with the healthcare, is, is the industrialization yeah. of India, which, of course, is for many things, including apparently stubble burning, but coal, construction, brick kilns are all pumping this stuff in. 
Um, so and, and now the longevity has pretty much plateaued, it's thought, and, and this is one of the reasons why. But it is relative, isn't it? I mean, I would take 69 over 32. And, but one of the prices of industrialization and the healthcare that might come with it is pollution, mm. and consequently, you get sick again. So that's a bit of a circular argument. What I did also read, which was interesting, India actually is now ahead of China on renewables and its infrastructure on renewables. Uh, but both countries are genuinely tr- making mm. uh, steps mm. towards uh, that. I, th- I think it's it Shanghai that has something like 50% of all new cars bought are now electric mm. cars. Mm. So within s- certain areas, they're in fact doing very well. But this is also a price of mass industrialization. Mm. And the air pollution we're talking about in particular is this thing called PM2. PM2. PM2.5, which are absolute kind of microparticles, but they come from uh, dirty dirty engines. They come from industry Mm. in particular. And that is basically what is happening because these countries go from agriculture to full development. I don't just have skin in this game. I have a lung in this game. I, I have something called bron- bronchi ecstasis. And, uh, oh, I know all about PM, <laughs> PM 2.5s. I, I measure them daily, trust me. Do you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I've got one of these things in my house, and it's, it's really interesting if you're a nerd as I am. When I start cooking, especially with gas, and then fry... Um, the PM2s and something else called the VOCs, you see it on this meter just shooting up and then I turn this air purifier on and gradually it comes back down. But, you know, I'm obviously quite obsessive about this. If you took it out in your garden or onto the street, would you be concerned about the air in London then? Yes, but actually it can be worse inside. Hmm. Sometimes, seriously, it can be worse. And I live near one of the main roads called the A4 um, in, up in West London. And it seriously it actually can be worse inside from all your mites and dust and cooking and stuff. Hmm. But the, the air purifiers do make things better. See, but it's a, it's a, it is a first world problem. Hmm. Well, so, Lon- so London is about to have uh, this uh, tax, this ULEZ tax right. against diesel. And um, I suppose slightly controversially, I would say, Air pollution is, is a problem, but it's also become a way for a city to generate money by taxing particular vehicles. Yeah, as I said and with Macron, where the California fires emit yeah. more than the whole of the French economy. So, there's, again, there's an yeah. imbalance, and somebody spotted that this is the way to people's hearts and lungs by saying, actually, you're going to be struggling with yeah. ill health. Let's let's tax the hell out of you in order to sort this out. You can't say the same about global warming, which no. in fact is going to cause you know, massive migration, mm. deaths, you know, crops not growing, you know, total disaster. Fascinating analysis. I think we could stay here for a while, but uh, I want to make sure we have uh, just a little bit of time for this last topic uh, tonight. Uh, we'll turn our attention to the world of media, a favourite topic of journalists, of course. Uh, Time magazine unveiled today its Person of the Year for 2018, highlighting the Guardians of Truth, journalists that have been killed in prison or prosecuted for their work. Uh, Four different covers, recognizing Jamal Khashoggi, who was killed in Saudi uh, embassy, of course, in Turkey, the staff of the Capital Gazette, the U.S. newspaper, where five people were killed, Maria Reza of the Philippines, and the two Reuters journalists jailed in Myanmar is as well. Uh, Is this, you know, the question of our time, truth and facts as we know it uh, are endangered? Is this this a a good cover? What do you think of of drawing attention to the plight of uh, journalists? Well, you frame that question very well, because mm. if you'd have said, oh, Times person of the year, mm. I'd have said, I don't care, because yeah. I really don't. And I don't think it has much effect anymore, mm. if it ever did. I think it used to be, oh, the Time person of the year. Yeah. I don't care any particularly. And I looked it up for better or for worse, has done the most to influence the events of the year. Well, the examples you've given 
didn't. Yeah. Xi, Trump, Putin, etc. are the ones that had the most influence. But uh, because you framed the question the way you have, yes, we are um, in something of a very, very difficult period journalistically, the crisis of belief, the crisis mm. of trust, uh, and also the attack on us. Uh, by those in power, and actually those not in power. I mean, the journalists covering the Gilets Jaunes riots in Paris were attacked as well. Yeah, uh, Joy, what did you make of this? Uh, does this uh, change the conversation for you uh, at all on, on on our jobs? Well, I, 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 I think Donald Trump will have been furious yet again to make <laughs> the cover of Time this year, and um, Khashoggi in particular is um, a, a, a bit of a sore because it's having to the US is having to. Sp- suddenly speak a little bit more carefully about its relationship with Saudi Arabia. Um, Is this important to highlight journalists? Um, Well, I think, I mean, as a journalist, obviously, I have skin in this game. And yes, I think it's incredibly important to have Mm. uh, this sort of recognition. Um, Is this going to change the world? Is it going to make it have a significant impact? Yeah. No, in in the end, because it's a, it's a, the powers that be are continuing to do so with fairly little censure. I mean, I think the irony about Khashoggi is that although yeah. the world followed that story, so how could we possibly be doing that? In the end, not very much happened apart from people pulling mm. out of a conference. I mean, I pull out of a conference every so often because I've got better things to do. Yeah. You know, in the end, what does, what difference does it make? What about for you, Tim? Does this change uh, the conversation on, on, on the year we've had and, and, and going forward in, in writing the truth or trying to anyways when dealing with people like Putin and Trump? And... Not really. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I want to say, yes, you know, this is going to kickstart, but this is a conversation we have been having for a couple of years now. Mm. It is a relevant conversation in, in the era of social media and the, the much-hated mainstream media and all the rest of it, which, I mean, I, I can't stand that phrase, mm. you know, as, as, if, as if the people sitting in their bedrooms writing blatant lies, or indeed in troll factories in, in St. Petersburg in Russia, uh, are, are sort of at are higher standards mm. than mainstream media. Those of us that, that work or worked in it know that for all its legions of faults, um, there is there are there is still an ethos that you do try to get things right. Sometimes in some sections of the media there is a bent towards one side or another. Mm. That, not in broadcast media, it's it's actually not allowed in this country. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a conversation that we 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 do need to and we do need to defend it and actually explain. Actually, given all the other things that are happening in the world. This is your best bet. Mm. Mm. Very well said, both. That does bring us to the end of today's show. Joy Ladico and Tim Marshall, thank you very much for joining us here on Midori House. Today's show produced by Carlotta Rubello, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Martha Libri, our studio manager, Christy Evans. I'm Daniel Bage. Thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>